the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. A football announcer is in some hot water. And then we're joined by Bob Lapine to talk about his new book, The Four Emotions of Christmas. You are listening to The Common Good. Thursday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out speaking today. Uh, so I am here by myself. Aubrey will be back with us tomorrow, but we've got a great show ahead of us. Coming up a little bit later this hour, Bob Smetana from Religion News Service is going to be joining us to talk about his new book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. Uh, you've probably, if you've been around the show for a while, you know Bob's come on multiple times, kind of to talk. He's got his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the church, and uh, we're excited to have him on there. Uh, he's going to be on a little bit later, and uh, yeah, just glad to be together as we get near the end of the week. We're even going to talk to somebody about Christmas later on. I mean, it's Christmas time is coming, so we're going to talk to somebody later on in uh in the show today so i uh, i want to start a kind of a depressing start let's just start in a depressing spot because i i was reading you're going through twitter and you click on uh, stuff to read and usually it's pretty lighthearted or you know it's not that big a deal but i i clicked on one today uh, at a place called common sense news and it is a long story out of canada and let me just read the headlines for it uh, because it, it, I read the whole thing and I ended up just needing to kind of sit back and kind of reflect and pray and wrestle. It's one of those articles. It's called this scheduled to die. The rise of Canada's assisted suicide program. What do you do when you discover your son has made an appointment for his death? And it, if that sounds like a heavy title, let me tell you, it's a heavy article. It shares the personal story of a mother who came to find out somewhat luckily that her son uh, had applied for and been approved for the uh, the MAID program, M-A-I-D in Canada, which stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. She found out when his scheduled death was and everything. And what this article ends up doing is it, it begins to trace how is this is specifically in Canada, how they're taking away a lot of the safeguards. Like we people always yelled slippery slope, right? Like, Oh, you get just a slippery slope argument if you think it's going to end up with euthanasia or this. But that's what's going on. And that that there is this increase of people in Canada who are applying for this and and who are dying and who are uh, setting up their own medically assisted suicides. And here's what's 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 scary is that the quote in here is that they are poised to become the most permissive euthanasia regime in the world. And there used to be you had to show, and I'm not even, this is not right, but but it used to be that you had to show that that you had, like, basically you were dying and that, that, that there was no hope for you and you wanted to uh, die this way. But now uh, 
it is um, in in Canada. They are they are taking away some of those safeguards. So now mental health issues, uh, basically saying if you just you know struggling from depression, all of these other things, they're starting to allow uh, this for for people to then say I want to sign up and be approved for medical assisted dying. And it says anyone who could show that their death was, quote, reasonably foreseeable was eligible. Uh, And in this respect, Canada, this is back in 2016, was hardly alone. The Netherlands, Switzerland, Belgium, Spain, Australia and New Zealand, among others, allowed assisted suicide. Uh, In 2017, the first full year in the MAID program uh, was an operation. 2,838 people opted for assisted suicide. By 2021, the figure had jumped to 10,064, accounting for more than 3% of all deaths in Canada. There have been a total of over 31,000 deaths in this program. Um, and it keeps going. Uh, today, thousands of people who could live for many years are applying successfully for the medical assisted death. And, and indeed, in some Canadian provinces, we read nearly 5% of deaths in those provinces are medically assisted suicide. Uh, last year, the government amended the original legislation stating that one could apply for the medical assisted uh, suicide or death, even if one's death was not reasonably foreseeable. The track of applicants simply had to show that they had a condition that was intolerable to them and could not be, quote, relieved under conditions that they consider acceptable. And so it goes and on and on and on. It says in 2023, these numbers are certain to rise. And the whole article is uh, it weaves really well the statistics, uh, the medical field up in Canada, and then just these personal stories of what is going on and why this is growing uh, and it's heartbreaking, and we would be naive to think if this isn't also on the horizon here in the United States. And this is where, for the church, the question becomes, what does it look like to be pro-life, womb to tomb? What does it look like to be pro-life, yes, for the unborn baby, but also for those who are struggling with mental illness, with with disease, with with physical ailments, like all of this stuff that's going on here. Because when the bureaucracies take over, when the government takes over, when this medical, this is what happens. And, and it's just, it's, it's so sobering and sad to read this. I read this while I was in my car and I just sat back in the parking lot where I was. And if anybody walked by, I was just sitting there going, what in the world is going on? How is this the people that we are becoming? The church must be the ones who are stepping in for the people who think that there is no hope but to kill themselves. We must step in and stand up to a society that says, you know what? Some people on the fringes, it's okay to just let them die, to help them die. We as Christians are called to be the ones to stand up for the least and the lost, for the hurting, for the marginalized. Uh, because what's going on with this program, it is it is the marginalized who are being killed, who are dying or choosing to die. And it's just so sad. And I understand that there could be arguments to be made if you're terminally ill or whatever. There's arguments to be made, but that's not what's going on in this. What's going on in this is people who are just struggling. 
And what does it say about us to, as a people that this is where people are turning? And again, I think we would be naive to think that this is not the wave that's coming here. And so the question for the church is, are we doing our job? What does it look like to step in? What does it look like to give people a picture of life that says it's worth living even though you are facing hardship? What is the picture? What is the church able to step in and do? Because, again, I read this, uh, and this is really difficult, really difficult, because they're almost the government of Canada, they're saying, is inducing people in some way those on the margins, to, to choose this. And it's becoming easier and easier and easier to do. So what are we going to do, church? How are we? I love that we that the church is pro-life for the unborn. Yes and amen. But what about for those who are sick, those who are dying, those who want to choose death, those who are struggling and on the margins? Is the church doing its job? Are we each doing our job of stepping in and going, no, keep going? persevere. Jesus is good. There's hope that you can have. Again, you can find this at commonsense.news called Scheduled to Die, the Rise of Canada's uh, Culture of Death. It is sobering. Uh, we talk about a lot about what, how do we, as people who long to follow Jesus, who long to uh, keep the faith, how do we live in a culture that is increasingly not doing so, that increasingly doesn't hold that as a value? Trevin Wax over at the Gospel Coalition, he wrestled with this in a way that I thought was really good. Uh, just the other day, he wrote a blog post called Love Your Unorthodox Neighbor. Love Your Unorthodox Neighbor. And I, I just wanted to uh, wrestle with some of the stuff he said. He said, uh, it's hard for some to stomach the drawing of clear, bold lines of demarcation in matters of Christian doctrine because declaring what's orthodox means ruling out what's heretical. Standing on truth means opposing falsehood. And once you draw lines, you imply some people fall outside the boundaries. He said, today we labor under the false pressure of thinking lines must be erased if all are to be loved. The way we extend love is by pretending our beliefs and practices are of ultimate importance. Walk this path and you eventually extend the boundaries of Christianity so far it becomes impossible to define. In the name of love, openness, and inclusivity, we don't expand Christianity but dissolve it. We remove load-bearing walls from the house, watch it collapse, and call it progress. So he's really got his finger on what's going on out there, right? Like, in the name of inclusivity, in the name of... Um, love in the name of all of these things, Trevin Wax is saying here that all too often we remove the load bearing walls. We erase the lines. We say, whatever you want to do, you do in the name of inclusivity. He goes on to say this approach to doctrine is attractive because we've fallen for the notion that love requires agreement or approval. It's hard to imagine we might love, deeply love people with whom our disagreements are fundamental. We assume we must shift the foundations if we're to love someone when instead a better understanding of foundational Christian truth shifts us into a posture of love across chasms of difference. So where does this play out? He goes on to say, most often, this plays out in the area of sexual ethics. What do you do if a close friend abandons his spouse for an illicit relationship, or your brother moves in with his girlfriend and scoffs at your old-fashioned notion of living in sin? 
or your daughter comes out as gay and rejects the biblical and historic Christian teaching on sex and marriage. He says it's a sign of an impoverished imagination if we think we must either approve whatever our loved ones decide to or turn our backs and abandon them. Reject this false choice. That's kind of where he's getting at. Reject the choice that you either say, you do you. It doesn't matter what you do. You just do whatever you want. Or Hey, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to I'm going to abandon this. I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to just approve whatever you want to do. Trevin goes on to say, for those who remain committed to orthodoxy in these matters, we must take a closer look at the foundations of our faith. On the one side, we see the uh, unchanging stance of the scripture and the church, a ruthless opposition towards sin in whatever form it takes, not out of hatred or disdain, but love for the one most affected by that sin. On the other side, we serve a Savior with arms outstretched, the ever-loving, ever-wooing God whose heart bleeds for sinners in need of grace. The orthodox line is stark, an eternal no to sin, matched by abounding love from a God whose kindness leads sinners to repentance. Like That's, that's the line we're talking about. <laughs> that ultimately, we don't give up calling sin, sin. But we also don't use that as a time to uh, to just beat people up or to use it as a, a stick. But but we love and kindness and we point people to Jesus. He, Wax says there's no wavering on the question of sin, but also no wavering on the calling to a love that wills the good of the other. If a daughter ventures out into the far country, the response of our father is to leave the porch laid on and the door unlock to survey the horizon, looking, hoping for the silhouette of his daughter to reappear, anticipating the moment when, instead of chastising, the father can race down the street to shower her with kisses. This kind of love upends all worldly expectations. Orthodox love extends into the far country. We go wrong whenever we assume that orthodox and unorthodox are categories for those we love and those we despise. If we take our stand on Christian orthodoxy, we're bound to follow Jesus' command to love our neighbors, even our enemies. Wax concludes this way. Yes, there are lines. The sword of truth divides mother from daughter, brother from sister. Our devotion to Jesus separates us from the world with bold, distinct lines. But that same devotion to Jesus calls for a love that crosses those lines. The same orthodoxy that rejects falsehood requires us to love the one deceived. Like the Apostle Paul will mourn the Demas types who walk away from the faith out of love for this world. And like the Apostle Paul, we cultivate a love that hopes of all things. We entrust our loved ones to the care of a merciful and just God whose redemptive plan will collect our tears of grief and turn them into rivers of mercy that carve out new canyons of beauty that testify to his grace. I think this is so where the rubber meets the road. When there's sin, when there's, um, yeah, when there's sin, how do we as Christians deal with it? When there's sin in loved ones, when they are off the path, if you will, when they have rejected the faith, when they are going in a way that we know leads to pain, we don't just get rid of the lines and say, oh, don't worry about it. You be you, right? That's a line of our culture right now. Hey, you be you. But instead, we still stand up for what we believe is right. We still stand up for um, traditional Christian orthodoxy, 
But yet at the same time, we fight that urge to therefore be judgmental, to cast people off. No, no, we say, but I love you with the heart of Jesus. Ultimately, at this is in a recognition that it is in relationship with Jesus Christ where true joy and life is found. And so therefore, we not just point people to Jesus, we invite them to know where true joy is found. Like, I think we struggle with that. Do you out there actually believe true joy and life, peace and hope is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is that where it is? Or... Is it found in getting rid of the lines and going off the path and chasing the things that our culture chases and says is good? See, sometimes I don't think we believe this stuff. Sometimes I don't think we believe that it's in Christ that joy is found, that hope is found, that love is found, that purpose is found, that all, all of it is wrapped up there. That Jesus said in John 10, I have come to bring life and life to the full, abundant life, both now and for eternity. Do you believe that? And then as our culture increasingly pushes back against Orthodox Christian belief, how will we as Christians respond? Trevin Wax here is telling us respond in love, respond with love, respond uh, with truth, respond with the heart of Jesus towards others without just saying, oh, whatever is good is good, you know, whatever you believe. We keep our lines of orthodoxy, we keep it there, but then we love those in and outside those lines with a desire to see them come and find the good news that is only found in Jesus Christ. Uh, And we got on an old friend of ours, someone who's been on the show many times, but he's usually on to talk about articles or talk about uh, issues of the day. But now we're going to talk about the book that he wrote. The book is Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. And that author is Bob Smetana. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for the book, first of all. It's a great book. And uh, you're looking at kind of the church, and and you're trying to take a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of what's going on. And so let's start with the negative. You talk about uh, why people are leaving the church. Help people understand kind of the shifting demographics, How what it looks like that people are leaving the church right now, how the church is changing. Sure, it's changing on a number of levels. So on the congregational level, it's changing from that in 1999, the average church had 137 people. Mm. Today, the average church has 65. Wow. You've seen this intense shrinking. Now, the average person goes to a large church of 350 people, so you might not see this if you're the average church member, but most congregations, the kind of congregations that are in neighborhoods, uh, that are older and established, those have all seen an incredible amount of shrinking. Hmm. And that's happened for, for a couple reasons. One of it is, um, one is just that the world that we used to live in doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So those churches were often built from mostly white, uh, mostly Protestant country, where the nuclear family was sort of the center of life, where church going was an important part, uh, a socially acceptable practice. And church played a really important role in life. Mm-hmm. And institutions were trusted. And so all of that has changed, right? We're no longer in that world. We're moving into, I'm about to have a granddaughter. When my granddaughter's born, she'll be born into a generation where there's no ethnic majority, right? So there's um, less than half of the people in the country will be white. People are, have a more kind of 
uh, a different definition of what family is, a different definition of how yeah. the roles of men and women, um, religion, and every institution is seen with skepticism and politically polarized. So we're in a world that is very different from the world that those churches were, were formed in. So there's kind of internal pressure and external pressure. And lots of us are having a hard time with this because it's so much change at the same time. Everything has changed, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that we used to know about the world we lived in has changed, and churches are having a hard time uh, catching up with it. And maybe one last piece of data. So in the 1970s, about 90% of Americans said they were Christians. So Pew Research just did some real projections of what the future of American religion looked like. And by 2070, which is the next 50 years, less than half of Americans will likely be Christians. And it could be just as much as a third. So, so it's a real, and there's no models, um, at least based on you know birth rates and demographics and the, basically the rate of uh, people dying off and the people being born into the church, uh, where the church revives. Mm. Uh, so it's a hard time. Yeah. And what did COVID do? How did COVID accelerate this? What did we learn about the church from COVID? COVID made it, we learned two things. One, we learned that churches would have mattered because almost every congregation, besides being very quick to move online, started some kinds of new ministries, right? They did more food pantries, Hmm. they did more counseling, they came to the aid of people, they made sure that people were visited when they were isolated. So they became really, really important to people. Sometimes they, in those Zoom meetings, you'd have weekly prayer meetings with people. So there's a lot more engagement with people. On the other hand, it also gave people, it broke the habit of church going. Mm. So, you know, if you think about something like exercise, most people who exercise, uh, they don't show up every morning going, I really love exercise. I'm going to go out for my run every day. They do it because they know it's really important, but they also make a habit of it. So we had church going as both a value for people and a habit. Like, this is what they did. They didn't have to get up and think, well, what do I do Sunday morning? It's like, I go to church. I'm part of this community. Well, all that was broken, right? For years, I know some congregations that didn't meet for two years. Mm. So that routine of being in contact with people, and so people dropped off. And also, it was, as you know, um, not a very harmonious time in American <laughs> culture. Yeah. Political polarization, yes. disagreements of what to do, not knowing what to do. So that became a lot of those tensions from the outside world came into the churches and people split and everything the pastor said became a minefield. Whether That's they get right. vaccinated or not, what happened with the election? What we should we do? What's the best way to move forward? And so that splintered a lot of the relationship with people. And yeah. then I think, you know, in some cases, churches told people by their actions that they weren't wanted anymore mm. in some cases, right? Especially if they were the wrong political party mm-hmm. or had the wrong view on a social social issue. It wasn't, we disagree and let's talk about it. It was, we don't want you here anymore. Yeah. So people left if they didn't feel wanted. And, and then pastors were worn out and tired. And um, it really made, it accelerated. If you have problems in your church already or under the surface problems, they all came out. And yeah. then every congregation has had to deal with the the kind of change that pastors and congregations have had to deal with are sort of unprecedented. Yeah, I I think one of the one of the main questions you answer in this book that is so important is so here's what's going on, but the why it matters. Why does it matter yeah. to our culture now? These changing demographics of the church. Well, it matters on a number. So churches play an enormously important role in American culture. 
if you look right now, so the, what's the big story in the world that we're not paying attention to? The aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Right, right. Large communities. Who's down there? Who's down there responding? There are FEMA people, but most of the volunteers are down there are faith-based groups. They're, they're Methodists, they're Presbyterians, they're Baptists, they're, mm. they're cooking food, they're cleaning things up, they're helping people put their lives back together. They do this because they're well-organized and kind of and well-trained and prepared and have the resources to help. This happens in every, almost for every part of our lives. We have schools, we have tutoring programs. We have weddings. If somebody dies in your community, where do they go to? The church for help. Right. It, it's the backbone of American society and, and, of the, and of people's lives, these communities. And so if they disappear and we don't think about, one, how do you replace that community or how do you shore up that community, then we're going to – it's like having a, a bearing wall in your house. Mm. Bearing wall is great. If you knock it out and you don't put anything in place, it's going to cave in and we'll be left – holding up the pieces, and there's nothing like churches and, uh, you know, organized Christianity gets a bad name. And That's right. People have used organized religion for bad, and, and I've reported on lots of that, as you know. But it also can organize people for good, and it's, there are hardly any institutions like this because they gather people together. They tell them, you should love your neighbor and make the world a place where everyone can thrive. They collect money. <laughs> They train people, and they send them out to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. and and at least to make the world less terrible if they don't make it better. Yeah, yeah. And if that's gone, then this kind of anchor of American society and people's lives is gone, and we won't know what to do without them. Hmm. So let me ask you your prognosticator hat. This could be a tough question, but a generation from now, if you're writing this book or writing like a follow-up, what's the state of the church? Do you think, does this turn around or does this keep going the way it's going? Well, it will be what it looks like today. So the way we do church now is going to change. Different people will be in the pews. Um, different, there'll be different folks. There will have, I, I think a lot of it depends on what church members and church leaders do now. What do you, who do you want to be in this moment? Because mm-hmm. there's all the incentives in our culture are to tell you who to hate and why you should hate them and why you should fracture, mm-hmm. why you should not care about them. And churches are a place where you say, no, we want to heal divide. We want to invite people in. We want people to share this kind of community and this great love that we experience and the love of God and express through human, you know, through human beings. So I think it's a time to say, like, who do we want to be? Because if you if you buy into the polarization, you're going to see increased decline. That's, mm. that's just gonna that's going to happen. You're going to sever those ties, and once and congregations are going to close. We're going to lose congregations. Yeah. Yeah. And but I, but I think if people say, okay, we have to adapt. We're in a new environment. We're not in the world we used to be in. It's almost like not, mission field is a wrong world, but it's a different culture and a different place to say, okay, how do you be faithful in this area and this time? And I've got a bunch of examples in this book of people who said, okay, everything changed. Well, how do we be faithful? Mm. How do we do? Because if you, if you look at the life that you have, or I have, many people in churches have, generations of people have worked and tried to be faithful and built the kind of churches and institutions that make our lives possible and make mm-hmm. our lives better. Mm-hmm. And so what we choose now will affect people in the next generation and five generations from now. That's right. And if we let these churches 
go because we don't want to change. And it doesn't mean changing theology, but it does mean looking at cultural things, like how do we treat one another? Mm. And how do we deal with each other when we disagree? And how do we look at the divides in our country and say, well, where's my, not just where's my fault in this, but how can I make it better? Yeah. How do I yeah. make the world a better place so people can thrive? Because we all know that we're human beings, we're going to have feelings. And, and churches are human institutions as much as they're spiritual. But if you say, okay, I want to make the world the kind of place where my neighbors can thrive, even if they're not part of my church, but they know that's the kind of aspirational, and it takes a lot of work, and the churches will have to go slow and rebuild and realize, oh, we're not as healthy and as strong as we do. We might have to do some rehab. We might have to rechange things for the greater good. Yeah. But if people choose that, things can get better. That's such a good word. I can't encourage you enough to go out and get this book, especially if you love the church and you, you want to see her thrive. The book is called Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters, written by Bob Smetana. Bob, thanks so much, man. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks for spending some time. So great to be here. Uh, we're going to talk in a little bit to Bob Lapine. He wrote uh, a book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. And it's it looks like a fascinating little book that you can give out to people. But the amazing thing is that we're talking about Christmas. Can you believe that Christmas is coming? Like, it's just around the corner. If Aubrey were here, she'd be like, I'm putting on my Christmas tree soon. Like, Christmas is just around the corner. And um, that's a good thing. Christmas is wonderful. Bob is going to talk to us about the anxiety that a lot of us feel at Christmas time. The... Um, yeah, just uh, the the depression. A lot of people, the disappointment that we we spend our whole life, our, our our whole Christmas season, I should say, buying gifts, spending money, baking cookies, having outings and parties, and we get to the end and we're kind of disappointed. We're kind of tired. We're kind of sad from the dysfunctional family or whatever else it might be. We're lonely. And uh, Bob wrote a great little book that you can give to other people. Uh, it is just called. Uh, the four emotions of Christmas and trying to point us back to Jesus, trying to point us back to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ at Christmas time. It is heightened, right? Like we know that this is where we are. So I'm excited to talk to Bob Lapine. That's coming up in a little bit. Uh, it's also the middle of football season. The Bears are struggling as always. My Giants. All right. Let me just, I know this isn't a sports show, but I do want to just say as a New York Giants fan, none of us expected us to be four and one right now. To beat the Green Bay Packers in London last week, like the Giants or something, like it's fun. And uh, my sports fandom has been crushed by the New York Mets over the last couple of weeks. And so, uh, you know, I, I want to be able to celebrate what is going on with my football team. And uh, yeah, the Bears, they play tonight on Thursday night football. So uh, hopefully they'll get a win and keep the ball moving forward. But there was something that happened during a football game last Monday night that has got an announcer in some hot water. And I wonder what you think about it. The game between the Kansas city chiefs and the Oakland Raiders or the Las Vegas Raiders. Now uh, they had a penalty in that game, very similar to the one that occurred in the Tampa Bay Atlanta game on Sunday of roughing the passer. And a lot of people are just throwing their hands up going, we don't know what you can do anymore that they've tried to take so much of the hitting and so much of the brutality out of football that some people are like, I don't recognize the game anymore. 
they don't recognize what's going on. It's gotten kind of soft. And whatever you might believe about that, um, it is different. And they're trying to protect players from injuries, especially head injuries, concussions. You might have seen what happened to Tua Valoa about a week ago. Uh, but this hit, this this call was just egregious in the Kansas City uh, Las Vegas game, and it really cost Kansas City because they got a fumble recovery. Anyway, you can go check it out. Uh, but in that, there was this questionable call, and Troy Aikman was doing the game with Joe Buck, uh, and Troy Aikman said, my hope is that the NFL commission, uh, competition committee looks at this in the next set of meetings, and, you know, we take the dresses off. And that was his way of saying, we got to get, like, the hitting back in the football. This is getting crazy. Uh, but then he got scolded from men and women. You can make your point without taking talking about dresses, Aikman. Somebody else had a truly awful call, but let's not overlook his sexist comment. Uh, and so a lot of people were crying foul about what Troy Aikman said. And, and when I read this, I thought to myself, huh, I had a couple different thoughts. And I wonder where you're at. I just, just want to put it out there for you. And that's this. At first, I thought, that's kind of crazy. Like, is it really that big a deal? Is it really a big deal that he said, let's take our dresses off, like as in, like, let's not play uh, soft anymore. But then it did actually make me think, but maybe that's not for me to decide. And maybe there we've come to a day where we just need to be careful with our words. You know, the Apostle Paul, let's take this to the Bible. He said, don't be a stumbling block to anybody. And sometimes when we get all on our high horses, like this is a minor deal compared to other things, but I have heard a lot of people in the church, outside the church, but especially I'm concerned about in the church, talk about their rights. I want to say what I can say. I want to do what I can do. But the Bible does talk about us um, not being a stumbling block. It does talk about us like being careful with our words and our actions to not be a barrier to people coming to the gospel. And so you take this, it's kind of a silly one, but you take this football in uh, example here and what he said caused some people to not be able to focus on the game or whatever else. We do this in much bigger ways when we, uh, you know, when we talk badly on social media, say, and we're like, whatever, I could do whatever I want. Okay. But maybe what you're saying is having an adverse effect on the gospel that people that you know, that people know that you claim. Maybe you're being a barrier. Uh, maybe you speak in ways that make people uncomfortable. Maybe you're a crass joker or whatever else where, you know, not everything that's permissible is beneficial. I guess what I want to say here is, I think we need to give more time to thinking about what effect do our words have on people's impressions of the gospel? What do people understand about Jesus from what we say and how we do this? Because I do think it matters. Like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the biggest deal in the world or not, but I do think it matters, not just what we say, but how we say it, how we represent Jesus. We talked about this a lot yesterday, that we are called to be messengers of reconciliation, Christ's ambassadors, that we are the reflections of Jesus to the world around us. And so that if you claim the name of Jesus, if you say, I am a Christ follower, it does matter how you live. It does matter how you talk. It does matter how you treat people. And if we, if we get up all up in arms and we say, oh, it shouldn't matter, that's not for you to decide. 
because it does matter. And heaven help us if we are the stumbling block for people coming to know faith, coming to know Jesus, coming to understand the gospel. I don't ever want us to be that, but I do fear that the church probably needs to do a better job of that. So this is a silly example from a football game, but I do think it points us to a bigger truth of do I say things? Do I act in ways? Do I uh, project a bad example of what it means to follow Jesus and therefore become a stumbling block to maybe people who would listen, who want to know, who would hear the words? That got me thinking today, even as we thought about what he said. As the air gets a little cooler and as things start to sell, uh, get a little bit away from summer, many of us are getting excited for Christmas. Christmas time is quickly approaching. And with that in mind, I'm excited to talk to the author of the book, The Four Emotions of Christmas. His name is Bob Lapine. Bob, how are you doing today? Hey, Brian, I'm great. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Let's just talk about the book, Four Emotions of Christmas. Uh, tell us kind of the overall um, idea of the book and why you wrote it. Well, the book really tackles the idea that we head into Christmas uh, expecting it to be a holiday that is full of joy and peace and love. And we often get there and find that it's more a holiday of stress mm-hmm. and sadness and unmet expectations. And so I I wanted to explore why it is that a holiday that that offers one thing often provides something different. And my real goal for this book, Brian, is that people who who don't go to church would get a copy. I'm I'm hoping your listeners would get multiple copies and give them to their friends, uh, maybe with a plate of cookies and an invitation to the Christmas Eve service. And, and use it as a way to open the door for a gospel conversation during the Christmas season. Oh, that's great. There's no better time of year than the Christmas season to be able to engage people around the gospel. And this book really comes around and says, you know, if you're really looking for joy and peace, it's not found in circumstances. It's found in a person, and that is the person who was born at Christmas. That's Jesus. That's right. So let me point people to a website. It's called 10ofthose.com. That's the number 10. 10ofthose.com, and there you can find the four emotions of of Christmas. Bob, even as you, as you talk about it, the idea of stress and disappointment and all of these things that come at Christmas, like you said, they're unexpected, but so many of us do struggle with those. Why is it, do you think, that a joyful holiday like Christmas brings up a lot of those bad emotions? Well, you know, we're overwhelmed during the month of December. You, you go back two centuries, uh, and and you go to the early 1800s, Christmas was not nearly the big deal then that it is today, either in England or here in the United States. Uh, People, it it was a minor holiday. But when Charles Dickens wrote the book A Christmas Carol, all of a sudden Christmas started to gain this kind of mythic quality. Mm. Everybody wanted to have a roasted goose and say, God bless us one and all, Mm -hmm. and stop work for a day and give presents. And and so we've watched it grow. And of course, it's been commercialized. And there's just been so much added on now that you've got the Hallmark Channel doing Christmas <laughs> every day yes. for, for months before we Christmas. It's just become it's become a holiday that's so loaded down with mythic proportions that I don't think any of us can can uh, get what what uh, is built up in in all of the cultural trappings of Christmas. That's why we've got to point people back 
to the biblical narrative and back to where true joy and peace are found, which is in a relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. and make that the heart of the holiday celebration. Yeah, and so, Bob, how do you think we can kind of get past some of that stuff, right? Like, you're so right. Christmas is now, you know, a month-long thing, and it's wonderful, but it is by the end you're tired and you're stressed and all of this stuff. You spent way too much money on the gifts for your kids and all of this stuff. How do we uh, How do we even get to the point where we can focus on Jesus? What, what might be a step or two? Let's ask it that way. What might be a, a strategy or two for people to maybe do Christmas differently this year? Well, you have to go into the holiday with your priorities established, and you have to think, when I get to December 25th, what's going to matter most to me? That's right. And I would suggest to listeners, what's going to matter most to you is what has been spiritually enriching in your life. That's going to matter more than the Christmas cookies or the uh, the, the plays and the activities, the parties, the uh, all of the stressful activities. Not that those are unimportant, but if you've got to drop some things from your agenda for December, and most of us do, let's drop the things that we're going to care less about when we get to uh, December 26th, and let's focus on spiritual priorities. And, and I'd just say, Brian, one of those spiritual priorities should be that we're talking with other people during December about Jesus. I mean, mm. there's, there's no time of the year that is better, easier to have a gospel conversation than the Christmas season. And like I said, I wrote this book, hopefully giving people a tool that they can take. And if you give a neighbor a plate of cookies, a copy of the book, and and an invitation to your church's Christmas Eve service, and then follow up with them and say, Hey, did you get a chance to look at that book I gave you? I'm just curious if you had any thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. And see if God will open the door there. That's that's really my hope for the book. In fact, I, I got to tell you quickly. I Go heard ahead. From a, I heard from a pastor uh, just today, uh, a pastor out in California. Their church is ordering a thousand copies of the book. Part of the reason they're ordering a thousand copies is because they can they can get them for less than two dollars a book. Wow. Yeah. And then they're going to their their congregation and saying, can you think of five or 10 people, you know, who don't come to church where you could use that strategy, a copy of the book, a plate of cookies, an invitation to the Christmas Eve service, and just see if this might be uh, a a season where we see people come to faith in Christ Mm. and worship Jesus at Christmas for the first time ever. What is it that that stops us from doing that? I know we always hear those messages. Hey, go invite a neighbor. Go do this. Uh, is it that we lack tools? We lack courage. We don't. We don't ever think about it. What What is it that stops us from inviting people and doing what you're talking about there? Well, we probably had an experience where somebody was gruff and said, "Oh, don't talk to me about that. I don't mm-hmm. want to talk about that." And then they pushed back, and so we thought, well, "I don't want to do that. I, I want to be a nice person." And yet, uh, we can expect that there's going to be some rebuff and some rejection. Jesus said we should expect that. Mm. That doesn't mean we. It means that we look for smart strategies and to have a tool like the book, to have a strategy. Again, December, to, to give a gift during December. That it's the gift giving season. Give somebody a copy of this book. I, I have another friend who's a. Uh, a hairstylist, and she is planning in her salon to have copies of the book just as a free giveaway. So I, I think she's buying 50 or 100 and just put up a sign, free take one, and hope that her customers come through, take a copy of the book. And you're planting seeds when you do that. Yes. And if people won't throw away a book that you give them because it's, it's 60 pages. It's not a huge book. They can read it in an hour, but it's it's a beautifully done book. 
They're not just going to toss it. It's a book. You don't just throw books away. Mm-hmm. It'll stay around the house, and who knows when they might be prompted to open it. Maybe there's a dark night in December where they go, I want to read that chapter on sadness because I'm feeling that right now. Mm. And maybe the Lord will use that in their lives. That's my hope and prayer. So again, go to 10ofthose.com. That's 10ofthose.com, the number 10, 10ofthose.com. Search for the four emotions of Christmas. And Bob, as we get ready for Christmas, we'll end here. Um, We often hear people say, right, keeping, you know, Christ in Christmas, Jesus being the reason for the season, all of those kind of pithy sayings are saying, remember that this is about Jesus. I want to leave you a minute just to give encouragement to our people out there to do just that, to focus themselves on Jesus this coming Christmas season. Yeah, and I I think to do that, we have to start the season by saying, this is where my heart and my focus is going to be. And I'm going to carve out time in my schedule, maybe even get out your calendar and put on your calendar uh, little little moments, maybe put an hour at different days where you're going to read a book that's going to remind you, that's going to be maybe a devotional book, or maybe there's an Advent devotion you've got, or you're going to do something to serve others. I'll, I'll give you an example of friends in our church who have picked out uh, people that they want to bless during the month of December. And so they're going to the fire station one night, and they're saying, we want to buy pizza for everybody mm. at the fire station. They're going to deliver pizza and They'll deliver copies of this book for every firefighter who's at the fire station. So so figure out those kinds of priorities. Add them to your schedule. And then when somebody calls and says, hey, can you come to our party this night? You can say, I'm already booked. I've got a project in mind. And you're focusing on what really matters during the Christmas season. That's great. Again, go to 10ofthose.com, the number 10, 10ofthose.com, uh, and the name uh, of the book is The Four Emotions of Christmas. As Bob uh, Lapine said, who wrote the book here, it's a great thing to give to neighbors. Do, take, a, take a batch of cookies and this book, uh, give it to neighbors, coworkers, friends, whatever else, and, and maybe have new conversations this Christmas season. Bob, this is a great idea, a great book. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks. Great to be with you. Aubrey will be back with me tomorrow as we close out the week. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow from four until six. All right. I got to tell you uh, about one of the crazier events. Uh, Christians are running these events all the time, but I want you to hear this one. Uh, Let me give you the details of what's coming up. Speakers to recite entire New Testament from memory at a five-day event. People will gather this week for a special event titled The Great Recital, where speakers will recite the entire New Testament from memory, word for word. The event, led by the Institute of Creation for Creation Research, will take place October 11th to the 15th, so it's going on right now, Uh, Professor Tom Meyer, also known as the Bible Memory Man, will be one of the featured speakers at the Great Recital. He will deliver a dramatic presentation of the New Testament. Uh, It says that they're going to do all 27 books, all 260 chapters, all 8,000 plus verses, all 180,000 words are going to be spoken word for word from memory. And in doing this... uh, He's saying they're wanting to point people to the power of the Bible. He said it's the perfect time to do this uh, with all that's going on in our world. Uh, He talked about the the benefits of memorizing the Bible, hiding God's word in our hearts. So it's going to start at 10 a.m. each day, and uh, you can live stream it on ICR's YouTube channel. 
man, that's kind of cool. I kind of want to see them. And there's going to be pressure because there's different of them doing it. But it does highlight the importance of Scripture reading. And I saw this stat the other day, which kind of goes the other way. It says this, only 9% of Gen Z youth are, quote, Bible-centered, the survey said. Fewer than 10% of the youth say they're committed to reading the Bible regularly, according to a survey. Uh, it says that those defined between the ages of 9 and 24 have a, quote, precarious relationship with the Bible. They found that only 9% of Gen Z youth were classified as, quote, Scripture-engaged uh, by comparison, 14% of Gen Z adults, 23% of, an, of millennials, and 47% uh, are, are scripture engaged. 47% of Gen Z youth were labeled Bible disengaged. Half of all American adults qualify as a Bible user today, those who use the Bible at least three to four times a week. However, with each generation that gets younger and younger, those numbers go down and down and down. So what does this mean to us? It means that we are not passing on the love of Scripture and the need for Scripture to the younger generations. And that, friends, has cataclysmic results. And I'm a parent. I've got kids this age. Like, I read this, and I'm like, oh, man. It's it's now it's not even saying they don't have faith but but what is our faith removed from a grounding in scripture i think of josh mcdowell the interview we did with him yesterday and he's you know spent his life uh with apologetics he spent his life with uh you know proving his new bible how his new book is how to know that god exists and he says the number one way that we know is scripture and the reliability of scripture and you know we we always are telling our youth change the world or do this or do that but we we need to be telling our youth is love god's word but not just our youth we need to believe that maybe what's going on here is that these youth are not seeing this in their parents they're not seeing it in the generation above them they're not seeing the value of it and so i wanted to end today by just asking all of us who are listening what is your role with the bible they use such an interesting phrase there Bible engaged or Bible disengaged? Which one are you? Because we've got scripture just at our fingertips all over the place, right? We've got hard Bible, you know, we've regular, like, you know, hardcover Bibles. We've got, um, we've got Bibles on our phones. We've got, we can listen to Bible apps. You could, there's no shortage of having the Bible accessible to you. But the question is, just because the Bible's accessible, do you have at all a commitment to it? Do you read your Bible? Do you listen to your Bible? Do you know your Bible? Do you, um, you know, treat it as the Bible uh, as the Bible itself says about itself that the, that all Scripture is God breathed and useful? Do you believe that the Bible is a necessary aspect of your life in the way that you actually use it? And I don't mean to make you feel guilty. I just mean to challenge all of us, myself included. Sometimes we've become so Bible adjacent, right? I listen to a sermon or a podcast or this or that, but never open it for myself and say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? So often we're like, God, I wish you would speak to me. God, I wish you would speak. And God is spoken in his word. Now, he, spoke, he speaks in other ways. I'm not one of these people who believes that God has stopped speaking supernaturally or miraculously. I don't believe that. I believe God speaks in any ways that he wants. But we know that God has spoken to us in his scripture, in his word. 
And yet so often, myself included, we ignore that. There's so many good Bible um, studies out there, so many uh, tools to help you read it. Just the question that you need to decide is, are you going to read your Bible? And it's so fundamental. How many times is that the answer to something? Read your Bible. Pray. Read your Bible. Pray. But it's fundamental because it matters. I think about uh, the famous story of Vince Lombardi, the old coach of the Green Bay Packers. And every year, even after they won championships, Vince Lombardi, uh, he would stand up in front of his team holding a football and he'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. It was his way of saying we have to get back to the basics. We have to get back to what's most needed right now, just the building blocks. And sometimes we as Christians, we struggle. How do I grow in my faith? How do I hold on in this culture? What, What do I need to do? And sometimes the answer is, here's your Bible. Like, read it. Read it some more. Be committed to reading it. God speaks in the midst of these words. His spoken word, his, his written word, his, the word of God. And sometimes I think that, that we, we overcomplicate things. That the gentleman, this is a football moment for us, is uh, men, women, this is the Bible. This is the word of God. I'm always so challenged when I hear those stories of other, you know, unreached people groups when they finally have the Bible um, translated into their into their language and they just go crazy. And then I look around and I've got a Bible on my phone and I got a Bible on my desk. I got a Bible on my a couple Bibles in my house, whatever it might be. Friends, are you scripture engaged or are you Bible disengaged, as they say in this um, this survey? Our youth are not valuing the Bible, and I wonder if it's because they see their parents, they see their grandparents, they see others not valuing their Bible either. May we be men and women who love the Bible because it is God's word. Well, I wanted to leave that with us and challenge myself as much as challenge you out there. Well, glad that you spent some time with us today. It's been a great show. Uh, Join us tomorrow as Aubrey will be back with us as we close out the week on the Friday. I hope that you have a wonderful evening tonight and do join us again tomorrow from four until six. My name is Brian Fromm and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>